Check, check. Hello, hello. What happens when you have hundreds of ideas and no time to work on them at all? Or maybe you just have no idea which one to work on. As a writer, I have tons of stories that I want to tell, but, you know, I'm one guy. I have the same number of hours in my day as you do, and some of those hours have to be dedicated to other things, like, you know, sleeping, or keeping the lights on for this business, or yeah, checking email, or maybe once in a while I'll actually work out. <laughs> Drinking coffee black instead of cream and sugar counts, right? But what if I didn't have to choose? What if you didn't either? What if you had this endless list of ideas, and you could actually run with, well, all of them? That seems impossible, right? Whether you're a writer, a musician, a podcaster, a product designer, an accountant, no one ever gets to run with every single idea that comes to mind. Except maybe for one guy. His name is James Miller. Today on the show, we talk about one of the smallest creative projects on the internet that's having a massive impact on its audience. And we learn two crucial concepts that we can use to constantly reinvent our work so that others constantly love it. It's tiny, it's quick, it's poignant. Keep, 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 keep it going. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. I'm Jay Akunzo. Are you familiar with Hemingway's six-word story? It goes like this. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. Oh, that, that one always hits me like right in the feels. I've challenged myself to write a similarly short, impactful story like that plenty of times, but I've never been quite able to hit the nail on the head. I hadn't come across anyone else who could pack such a punch in such a short narrative frame at all until I came across a project called A Small Fiction. Initially, this was just a Twitter account. And yeah, the creator, James Miller, allows himself more than six words. But I was wildly impressed to see the different tones, the different genres, the different subject matters, and most importantly, just how much meaning and emotion you can pack into something that small, just like Hemingway before us. Here's an example of a recent story from James. Her grandma's recipe said, made with love. She tried. It never tasted right. It didn't even seem to matter which loved one she diced in. It's dark. It's funny. It has a twist ending. It's so many things that I look for in, well, big fiction, big stories. See, in the business world and in my life, in many of our lives, we all suffer from something called a complexity bias. Complexity bias. Complexity bias. Complexity bias. Complexity bias. This is a very human thing to suffer from. We prefer the complicated to the simple. We think that just because something is complex, because it has lots of layers and levels, it must be better. It must be smarter, it must be more innovative, it must be harder to achieve, it must be worthy. Something is better if it seems complex, and we prefer it. We have a complexity bias. Think about the way that so many marketers speak as one example. The jargon that's teeming with absurd claims and phrases, the way we say things like best in breed or paradigm shift, or how about this, this is my all-time favorite and by favorite, I mean least favorite, on a go-forward basis. What the actual hell? What are you saying? Speak regular English. <clears throat> so yeah, business jargon. It's a thing. 
And why? Because we like to overcomplicate stuff. We like to make things sound more important. Complexity bias. Complexity, Complexity, Complexity bias. bias. And I think the same goes for creativity. Think about it this way. Way too often as creators, we think we have to concoct these massive viral ideas or else it's not a success. When we measure results, it has to be a giant spike in the numbers. No spike, no good. If we want to write something amazing as a writer, that means writing longer or weaving in tons of research and stories and charts and drawings and embedded videos. If we want to create a podcast, we must have to have the staff of NPR or else I guess we're stuck just doing a 45-minute meandering interview with no point and no entertainment value. It's like if our end result doesn't absolutely blow up, if it's not the next best thing in our field, what's even the point of making it? That's why what James is doing with A Small Fiction was especially refreshing to me. Don't go into the woods. The monsters will get you, she'd been told. So she went into the woods and found the monsters there. They shared stories of the world beyond the woods and all agreed it was more trouble than it was worth. She was glad. They got her after all. It's somehow this duality of like, those big feelings and emotions and like world building bottled up in almost no text at all. Like, how do you make sense of that? It can be an hour or two just really looking at something and changing something until I feel like it reflects a bigger feeling that I'm that either have or I want to express without seeming like trite or saccharine, which I'm sure they do sometimes. But it's the added benefit, I think, of it It makes them very broad, which is strange. Like, when you write a lot, it's talking about kind of your feeling. But when you have to strip it down to almost nothing, it's talking about a feeling, you know, because you don't have enough space to really make it about yourself. Stories like the ones that James tells through A Small Fiction resonate with us because they give us room to see ourselves and our experiences and our own stories in them. She'd heard it wasn't the destination that mattered, but the journey. She didn't agree. What mattered was who you chose to ride shotgun. As creators of anything, we might look back and say, we look at spikes in the results, and then we try to manufacture more spikes instead of looking at the whole trajectory of what we're doing, whether we measure improvement, satisfaction, actual results of some kind. Like the slope of the line, I think, matters over time, not random spikes um, and manufacturing those spikes. But do you find yourself having to fight yourself internally to not just look at what worked in the past and try to manufacture that same feeling or same result? Absolutely. And constantly. Um, That's, I think, one of the things about producing content that's consumed immediately and continually is that you um, have continuous feedback and you aren't working for a really long time and then putting it all out there at once. um, You're working a bit at a time and getting feedback on each bit. Um, So it's, on the one hand, completely amazing because you get constant feedback and you can really reflect on your own process and on what people are responding to. And on the other hand, it's terrible because you really have to reflect (laughs) on your process and what people are responding to. So 
you you're adjusting and you're learning about what you're doing and what you're creating, but you you really have to be careful not to over adjust and not to say, hey, I'm making this to try and manufacture that result. What what do you lose if all you're doing is looking at quote what works and trying to put that on repeat as your proxy for this is consistency? I think that you lose authenticity in a in a really real way because these spikes they happen usually organically. They're they're something that you created uh, for a different reason. Otherwise, the spike wouldn't be there. You had nothing to look back at and say, hey, I'm going to manufacture this. You do something and it really resonates with a lot of people. And that's something that, that wasn't manufactured. And that's usually a part of why it resonated with everybody. So when you're going back and you're trying to recreate the hits, it's not going to have the same recipe to it of whatever created it. It's some, it's by definition going to be a different animal. You know, there's no reason to think that something that you're trying to create to be popular is going to be popular when the things that were popular in the first place were just something you wanted to make. Yeah. Did it hurt? He said. Hmm? She said. When you fell from heaven? Nah, saw it coming, actually. What? I did too many murders. Hey, I get it. I really do. It's hard to consistently create a good product. Whatever you create, it's hard to put that out at a consistently great clip over time. And it's so hard, in fact, that I'm dedicating this entire season of Unthinkable to figuring out how in the world people create consistently great work. And if there's one thing I've learned so far from talking to a few people like James, it's that consistency doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of time to learn what works and more importantly, why it works and most importantly, how to make it keep working over time. Of course, when something works, it's tempting to glom onto that and do the same thing over and over forever ad nauseum. Chances are it was hard work to get one thing to resonate deeply. I call that one thing Nirvana. You experience this moment with your audience, with your team, by yourself, where, oh my gosh, it's this. This is what everybody should do all the time. You found it. You've made it. It's working. It's great. The numbers spiked. The emotion that you feel towards the work or that your audience feels towards what you've built is high. Everything seems great. They love us. But then, over time, things start to drop off. And it's tempting to now automate, to find ways to be more efficient about recreating that moment of nirvana. Just do it again and again and again and again. But over time, that starts to wear away, and eventually you reach something called stagnation. (sighs) And if you don't use the signs of stagnation as a way to reinvent your work then, well, you're doomed to reach what I call the crapping point. I don't, I don't know what happened. It was working before. It just, it just crapped out on us. And way too often in business, we get into this cycle. They love us. It's amazing. We're starting to get diminishing returns. It's dropping off. And then we plateau. We've reached stagnation. Whether the market has caught up to what we did, or we just check out of the work and aren't invested in it like we were at first, or the audience has grown tired of what they once found great that now just seems commonplace to them because we just keep doing the same damn thing over and over. And then eventually, it craps out. 
And then and only then do we act. We act when it's too late. We panic meet. We jump in a room to brainstorm some kind of tactic to juice the marketing numbers. We run discounts to juice the sales quota before the end of the quarter. We do hackathons and sprints and all these things to do last minute, last ditch things because we didn't reinvent our work before it was too late. So now we're acting, well, after it's too late. So how can we stay consistently creative? It's not easy, but I think it takes small moments of reinvention all along the way. If you're pulling stunts to save the day, if you have to do some sort of giant pivot, that's too late. So what if instead we were constantly reinventing little things all the time? Well, now the question becomes, what things do we keep the same and what things do we reinvent? When you create anything, and in this case, it's almost overt in the name of what you do with a small fiction, but you you find these anchors. I think initially the anchors provide constraints within which you can be more creative, but over time they start to become these identifiable traits that like people can point to and describe as why they love it. So with you, it's short uh, stories, fiction, perhaps social, but I don't even think it's tied to that because now you have the book. And then I, I think around these anchors, you can like rapidly experiment with the other stuff and almost like reinvent whole pieces of it. Like you might have no creepy content at first, but then you branch into horror. So how proactive is that versus reactive? Like you're like, okay, I'm going to just stick to these two or three things every time and everything else is up for debate. Is that a proactive thing? Or do you look backwards and say, this is just kind of how it happened? I didn't set any boundaries genre-wise or content-wise on a small fiction where they're not, it's not branded that way as like, this is a wholesome account or this is a scary account or this is a sad account, you know, where it's like, you come here to, to look for a certain type of content because I, I don't think that I could keep that up. I don't think that I could remain interested in creating something along the same bell curve every single day. I don't feel the same every single day. I'm not interested in the same things every single day, but people respond to different things. And there are people who I know uh, really enjoy small fiction for very wholesome content and other ones who really like creepy content. And, um, and I know that those people are disappointed when something comes up that isn't to their taste. And some of them will, will express that, but then you can't really let that take the wheel uh, because there's, so much variety in what people expect that there's no catering to it anyway. You know that some stuff is going to make some people really happy or it's really going to be something that they remember and other people are really going to not enjoy that. It sounds like you have this uh, disdain. I share it, so I totally understand it. But maybe we can make sense of it of like when you develop a stale pattern or when a pattern becomes stale, it's like this visceral reaction to break it you know, to, to make sure you've identified it. And now you're going to break from that stale pattern. It matters to us as creative people because it makes the work more interesting and richer, et cetera. But why do you think it matters to the audience who's already raised their hand and said, we like what you're doing now? Why do you think it still matters that you identify those stale patterns and try to remix or refresh them? You just see the, the same formula happening and you realize, oh, I'm, I'm more following a track that I've laid out that I am making something new. And you have to say, it's like, well, what if my first line only has two words in it? What am I going to do with that? Like, it might not be good, but it's going to be different. And you just really have to 
to try and make sure that you're not becoming complacent and just making something that's the easiest thing to make. And I think it means less over time for for everyone, the person creating it and for the person consuming it. If it's borrowing from stuff that's happened already too often and too much. Starting with a knowledge of the framework, that meta level can be huge. But it's not about merely finding the framework, then sticking to it forever. That leads to stagnation all over again. That's vulnerable to this friction that time creates against our work. No, it's not enough to find the framework. You also have to continually break the framework. And since that's super open-ended and potentially really scary, let's break the idea of a framework into two pieces. You have anchors and tethers. In the literal sense, an anchor is that object that sticks and stays, but it's attached to a tether, a rope or a chain that allows for some motion in different directions without completely abandoning your core location. In other words, anchors are those things that you believe should remain consistent and untouched, at least for now, as a part of your work or as a part of the framework of your work. And the tethers are the things that you can experiment with, but they must serve the anchor. They're constrained by and connected to the anchor. James has done this incredibly well. Despite James's project being so small and compact, he's still found moments of anchors and tethers. In my world of public speaking and writing books and creating shows with brand clients, these things all contain what I call a big idea. The speech, the book, the show, there's always this one big original and identifiable thing that we're exploring. It's also made my work simpler too, because I have to create a story that serves that bigger idea, that serves that anchor. To help explain what I mean and to tell the rest of the story I'd like to introduce you to Unthinkable's new producer and co-writer, Tally Gabriel, who's been working behind the scenes already with the show. Some of you even heard her last week, but in her more like formal introduction right now, uh, I'd say this to you, Tally. Uh, what are the first words you'd like to say to everybody listening? Hi. <laughs> I like it. Simple, but straightforward. I think James, James would probably approve. Um, so... For context for everybody listening, Tally's helped write this episode. She also wrote the uh, Bad Different episode a couple of weeks ago, which was awesome. You should definitely check that out. Um, and she has a lot of thoughts about, well, pretty much about everything that I bring up with her, which is great. That's why <laughs> I wanted to work with Tally. Um, but specifically about this notion of anchors and the dangers of getting too caught up with the uh, complexities of creativity. That, that's right. Right, Tally? That's right. I have so many thoughts about that. <laughs> Okay, so um, so Tally, this is your second episode. I think it was just the it was bad, different, and then this one, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's a question: Is working on a script of this show complex? Ooh, no, it's not especially complex. Um, it's hard. Don't get me wrong; it takes a lot of time and plenty of brain energy. But I wouldn't really say it's complex. Like, there's not a million moving parts or something. You know, to explain what I mean, I have to give you a look at the rundown. So. Jay, do you mind if we take a look behind the scenes of our show? Yes. Oh, I love doing this stuff. All right. What do you got? Okay, cool. So an unthinkable episode has anchors that you as a listener probably aren't consciously aware of, but would recognize if someone pointed them out to you, which I'm doing right now. <laughs> but okay, so there's the cold open where Jay introduces the subject of the episode and the larger theme that the episode is tied to. Then there's some theme music and the opening line that you totally recognize, I'm sure. It's tiny, it's quick, it's poignant. Keep, 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 keep it going. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. Yeah. 
So then the episode is broken into blocks, and knowing what needs to go into the blocks helps me pick out which parts of the interviews to use and which parts we don't necessarily need. The parts of the interviews that don't make it into the episodes aren't bad by any means. They're just, I don't know, charting our ship for Morocco, say, when we're trying to sail to Tanzania. And <laughs> so, well, just... that's, that's like the most tally metaphor I've gotten from you so far. Uh, <laughs> thank you, yes. Because like most people would be like, they're you know charting our ship for the ports of Italy when most people would be sailing for France. I, lo- I love that you said Morocco and Tanzania. Yeah, thank you. Just thinking really big picture, and I'm really running with the ship metaphor. It's really in my brain, so get on board, which is no <laughs> pun intended. Okay, so <laughs> the anchors of the episodes are what makes sure that Jay and I remember that within James's episode, for example, we're exploring this bigger theme of the simple versus the complex. They make sure I know that in this block, which is the C block of the show right now, for in case you were wondering, uh, I'm going to circle back to that theme Instead of just riffing on nautical metaphors forever, which would I could totally do, and which would then lead me to research how sailors used to chart their courses using the stars, which would then result in me clicking on an article about how often ships in the 1800s were overtaken by pirates, which would then make me want to look into how many notable female pirates we know about, which would lead me to an awesome freaking piece about Ching Shi, the coolest 22-year-old female pirate who commanded a crew of 80,000 outlaws and was technically the most successful pirate captain ever. And, tally, tally. Uh, mm, well, okay, right. Simplicity and anchors and not going on random tangents that have no business existing in this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, and so, so Tally, one of the most important concepts you've touched on, you talked about a rundown and then you mentioned the word blocks. There's something even smaller called beats. So if the rundown is the structure of an episode, the blocks are the major sections. And in TV, you often hear them mentioned sometimes overtly A block, B block, etc. Uh, the beats are the little moments you want to capture that fill in the blocks. And this isn't giving us a framework to stick to like it's religion, but it is giving us clarity around how we want to construct the typical unthinkable episode and then it lets us play and experiment off of that that base so we're giving ourselves anchors but we're also giving ourselves this this freedom to move and those are the smallest possible anchors the blocks and the beats but like you said there's also a larger one which is the theme of the episode itself it's in this case i think it's simplicity versus complexity and how that applies to consistently creating work or reinventing that work but then you can zoom out even further and there's this like giant anchor it actually might even be like this mass the massive borders of like a huge lake or something but there's like this this other constraint which supersedes even the episode which is what we're exploring all year long you know it's it's how to create consistently great work by mastering the art of reinvention instead of what a lot of people in business do which is they glom onto shortcuts cheats and hacks and other bs or they just treat creativity like random acts like we have to pull a stunt we have to have the big idea So there's this massive anchor over the top. And I think in all of these things, whether it's the year-long exploration, the episode theme that supports that year-long exploration, or it's the components of this episode, doesn't matter what we're anchoring to, we shouldn't stray so far from any of these things that we become untethered entirely. Because I think that leads to complexity, right? So for instance, the first draft of this episode really focused on simplicity versus complexity. And when we talked about what you'd written, we then tweaked it together to better explain how that theme fits the even larger anchor, the the kind of macro anchor, the big daddy of the anchors here, which is how do we reinvent the work? How do we con- continually refresh what we do? And so like the episode could have sat by itself as a great story, but we also want to make sure that we're tying it to that larger theme. So if we embrace that consistently great work consistently changes, we're also trying to say, 
but not radically. You know, even though we're talking about reinvention, it doesn't mean overhauling everything. We're not uprooting everything we do and like pulling up all the anchors. It means refining. It means refreshing. It means exploring all the time. So in other words, it means deploying a few anchors and then tethering all our new experiments off of them. And I think that can actually be simple. But I know, Tally, you and I talked before about how people misconstrue simplicity. Yeah, I think we get nervous of the term simple because... I mean, in other contexts, simple can mean shallow or stupid. But when we try to do too much on creating anything, we risk overwhelming and totally losing the listener. I mean, take emotions, for example. Just think about basic emotions. When you think about love, anger, sadness, we all know what those feel like. We can connect to them, relate to them. We can empathize with them. But when a writer, for example, tries to turn them into too much, like telling you a character feels an icy grip in his stomach, for example, which is, uh, you know, certainly not anything I've ever written in fiction. It's <laughs> fine. I mean, you, you, you read that and the audience, you can get distracted or lost trying to figure out what exactly did I mean? Is the character afraid? Gold? Hungry? Are they all of those things? And by the time you as the reader have tried to decipher that, we've lost you. I think simple things are often the most poignant and beautiful choices. I'm a cellist. So, for example, a fast cello riff is super impressive, and it can be really exciting as a bigger piece of a different song, but when it goes on too long, the listener gets lost and will start tuning it out, no matter how technically cool it is. a slow, simple cello melody, however. Oof, that can just tug at your heartstrings all day long. So I think what's important to understand here is we're not, we're trying to get away from what ends up happening when somebody hears the word simple, especially in the business world. You know, don't conflate simplicity with a lack of depth. Just because something is simple doesn't mean it can't also resonate deeply, sitting with you really in that emotional place that you mentioned, Tally. And likewise, don't conflate simplicity with a lack of efficacy either. You know, just because something is simple doesn't mean it's ineffective. I would look at all the different things that James has done with a small fiction or really anything we're doing in our work. If we change something small, I mean, take the rundown of unthinkable. This is a new section entirely. Even though C block exists, we're kind of reinventing what goes inside of it right now because the context has changed. You know, we're telling a different story focused on different anchors. One of these new anchors, by the way, is we now have two voices. We now have two creative people, you and me, before it was just me. So simplicity doesn't mean lack of depth, nor does it mean ineffective. That's a good segue that this is when the unthinkable episode would transition to our D block, which is another one of our anchors that has existed before there were two voices, but continues to exist with two voices. And it makes sure that we're going to get a sense of our hero, our protagonist's backstory, and what led him down his journey. 
Right. And I think what I've done with Unthinkable over the years, I just tried stuff that felt right. It just was all gut feel. And then I looked at the episodes that made me light up, which typically overlap with the ones that people tend to love most. It's it's nice when you find that overlap. So, you know, the cold open has the distinct purpose of letting you know why this is worthy of your time. The A block is how do they run counter to the convention? Because this is a show about doing so. The B block is what I'd call the aspirational anchor, which comes from my book, which is this lead story or vignette or reflection on some kind of emotional battle within. It's it's the human relatability of when you're faced with all this conventional thinking, what happens to you? What happens to the work? The C block is typically like, why does that happen? What's the best practice in general? What's the human context? Like, it's the first principle insight of like, even though they ran counter to the convention, why did it actually make logical sense for this protagonist? You know, it's trying to paint unconventional paths and creative work as smart and strategic, not they were rebels and they have the gift, right? So that's what C block is for, is why, what insight did they have in their context that made this work actually logical? And what we were just doing was taking C block and actually deconstructing it as two voices in a way I hadn't done before. Yeah. So we reinvented this type of episode because I wasn't speaking to James, you weren't speaking to James, we were speaking to each other. And now we're moving into, okay, now that we're on board with this kind of pithy arc of a story let's go deep. Let's really understand this person, their backstory, what led them to this. Who are they to have gone down that path that actually seems logical? And why didn't we notice it as logical before? So I know that was a lot, but I want to get that out there because I think it's important people understand every block has a purpose that's been constructed to create a good experience. And that now gives you and me the power tally since we can overtly recognize what the parts and pieces are to reinvent some of them. What you mentioned at the beginning of that little tangent is that when you started setting up these blocks, you weren't even totally aware that you were doing it. You were just thinking, I need to tell the story. And the best way to tell the story is to make sure all of these parts are there. I think when people have an anchor in their work, the consistent element that repeats, they don't always know that they're doing that at first. And it's helpful to realize it and then really you know, solidify that as part of your work process. But when James started a small fiction, he didn't say to himself, you know what? Novels are too complex. I'm going to pare my stories down for the sake of being simple. Right. He didn't overtly say to himself that he was going to stick to certain genres, even though at first he did in the same way that when I started this show, I didn't say to myself, okay, this is the construct of one of those stories. Um, And with James, it wasn't until later that he actually pulled up that anchor of genre. He recognized looking backwards, actually, I've been anchoring to this set number of genres that I personally liked or thought that people would enjoy. And when he pulled it up later, the reason was he needed more room to explore, more ways to to reinvent, to remain consistently great. But again, that's not at all how his story actually began. Okay, so we, we can back up a little bit. So you weren't always a, uh, you know, able to philosophize uh, so eloquently about all this stuff. Where did your love of writing first start? I was one of those kids who was like binding my own books like I would take the scrap paper and I would like the idea of books was really strong with me so I I would cut them into the little shapes and then I would put do the staple binding and then the tape and then I would like write the title on it and then I would write some story about a fish or whatever and there's must be just a crate of those somewhere and they're more the idea of writing than writing because I didn't understand what the whole thing was yet but I I don't know because it was always there what are the various jobs you held in writing? And at what point did you launch a small fiction? Really, like small fiction came out of the job that I had where I don't think that I had a lot of outlet for writing at all. 
like I was working at an insurance company as a um, mostly like data entry and claims review and things like that, like on a very low level, like just checking boxes and stuff. And it was um, fairly tedious work. And it was just so unengaging to that part of my brain that it was I was just doing both the whole time. I'm checking the boxes and it's very mechanical. And then my brain would kind of wander and I'd want to write something, um, but I didn't have time and I couldn't really scratch that itch. So I would just scribble things on um, notepads or something like that. And eventually I started putting them on Twitter because it was easier and it was, um, it wasn't really meant to be anything. It was just, I would have a thought and I didn't want it to go away. I wanted it to save it and I would keep it. And it didn't occur to me that that would be something anyone cared about for years. I started in, I think 2009 and I didn't really take it seriously and start deliberately working on it consistently until I think 2014 or 15. In talking to James, it was clear that he just did this to scratch his own itch. He wanted to create this project. He wanted it to exist. And at first, that was enough. There was nobody really paying attention to this project. I remember when I uncovered this, probably in 2016, there were about 7,000 followers on his Twitter account, which I thought was decent, if modest, for something this brilliant. Fast forward to today, and the Twitter account has 102,000 followers. James, by the way, only follows 10 people. On Instagram, he has over 30,000 followers, and on Facebook, 22,000. Now, reach isn't everything, but the resonance here is incredible. With every tweet, for instance, he gets tons of replies and a ton of retweets and likes. And compare that to the business guru, the top 40 social media influencer as named by Forbes, who brags all the time and just spews nonsense on the web. They have hundreds of thousands of followers, but they follow like 95,000 people. And despite that massive reach, there is no resonance. Nobody's interacting with their content. James has built true community, and that actually led him to write a book. So from the outside looking in, it's a smash hit. But having success and serving an audience can necessarily change what you do. And since we're exploring the idea of constantly changing and reinventing, I wanted to ask James, how does that stuff change what he's doing for better or for worse? Early on, you're pretty much doing it for yourself. And the more you get response from people who, you know, people are saying stuff like, hey, I really look forward to this. Like I read them every morning before work those people pop into your head and you think, man, I kind of want to go to bed. I don't want to spend another hour thinking about this, but if I don't do it, this person somewhere in Michigan is going to wake up and they're going to be a little, just a little disappointed before they go to work. And that's because of me. So I better, I better keep working on it. Um, and that, that's been a, a pretty overwhelming change. That was it. Halloween was over. Back to her regular, everyday self. One disguise for another. The work you create evolves the same way that you do. Like looking back at photos of yourself five or ten years ago, sometimes you feel good about it and sometimes you think, what was that? Like, what was I thinking? And the stuff that you make and the stuff that you put into the world is the same way. And just because it's simple doesn't mean it's meaningful, but... If you're able to express something meaningful to you in a simple way, it creates a really accessible window for someone to understand you and maybe to understand something else. And that can be kind of surprising and illuminating. 
We all want to exceed expectations with the work we create, but the way we're going about it often hurts us instead of helps us. We try to spike the numbers, we generate random ideas, we come up with a shortcut, a cheat, a hack, or we find someone who can give us that. We want those single moments of outlier massive success as signal that we are exceeding expectations. And what's missing is consistency. Consistency is small. To keep it simple, we can explore by tethering off of our anchors. Maybe your anchors sound like short, fictional, and social. Or a podcast with blocks and beats. Whatever the case, whatever you're creating, find small ways to continually refresh the work. That can help us reinvent over time. Tiny changes, simple ones, can help us avoid stagnation and never reach the crapping point. In other words, we can continually exceed expectations. Small motions creating a movement. But none of this happens unless we put aside this desire to find a shortcut, a cheat, or a hack, and instead focus on consistency. I would say that it probably takes a couple of things. The first is the acceptance that you're not going to create consistently great things no matter what you do or how you do it and to accept the fact that you're gonna make some stuff that sucks and that's okay because it can be in the space between great things. And the other thing is give yourself permission to do that. The very first comment I ever received on a small fiction, no one had ever responded to any of them. The very first response I got was a small fiction sucks, that's it. That was the first thing anyone ever said about this project. Um, And that's like a pretty good jumping off point to just stop. But it's okay that someone thought it sucked. And sometimes I think it sucks because if you're afraid of failing once, you're gonna be afraid of failing all the time and you never create anything. I guess the ability to create consistently isn't the ability to always create something great. It's learning how to be okay with not doing that and creating something anyway. Know any stories, Emily asked the stars. Just one, but it's a long one, the stars said. How does it end? We're not sure it does. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Unthinkable. If you like the art of the interview, if you're trying to get better at the craft of creating shows, I'd encourage you to go over to marketingshowrunners.com. This is the media company that I now run as the founder, and we've built a small team to serve you and our subscribers from brands like Red Bull, Roku, Adobe, Salesforce, Shopify, Wistia, the BBC, Zendesk, MailChimp. I mean, I'm just blown away by the response to MSR early on. And the whole goal behind MSR is to help marketers make more and better shows. And the and better part is incredibly important to me. See, marketing is no longer about grabbing attention. It's all about holding it. Great marketers today understand marketing isn't about who arrives. It's about who stays. 
So if you believe that, I hope you'll check out marketingshowrunners.com and read and subscribe for free. That's marketingshowrunners.com. All right. As always, I'm your host, Jay Akonzo, and I'll talk to you on the next episode of Unthinkable. See ya.